9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. I'm coming to you from New York City, but coming to you from our nation's capital, we have Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello. And Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello. And Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hello, David. And a new guest that we are delighted to have join us. Many of you may have seen him commenting on various television networks during the past crisis or before. Chris Liu, who was uh, cabinet secretary in the Obama administration, and uh, he was deputy secretary of labor. Hi, Chris. It's great to be on. Uh, so, Chris, let me start with you. We've been talking about the crisis as we go, uh, because, you know, it's hard not to. Uh, you were deputy secretary of labor, and at no time in your worst nightmares as deputy secretary of labor, did you ever expect to see 30 million Americans unemployed or depression level unemployment rates? Um, but it's going to get worse, isn't it? It is going to get worse. Um, it will eventually get better, but I think part of it depends on how deep this hole actually is. I mean, first and foremost, this is a public health crisis. And until you get your arms around this crisis, it's hard to really assess what the economic damage is. But just to give you a sense of the magnitude, the 20 million jobs lost last Friday uh, are 25 times worse than anything we saw during the Great Recession. And I think we've got a couple of weeks and months of more bad news coming. You know, we're in this debate. How do you deal with that? Um, uh, you know, one response is, op you know, open up so people can get back to work. Um, yet other things that I read, of course, argue that one should not only take care to contain the disease first, but that even if we opened up everything tomorrow, getting out of a hole that's this deep might take years. You know, I think it's right. And I think it's a false choice to say that we have to choose public health or a strong economy or any kind of functioning economy at this time. The important thing to understand is that the economy really runs on confidence. It's confidence of businesses that they can reopen safely. It's confidence of workers that they can go to work. It's confidence of customers that it's okay to go shop. And right now, when you look at public opinion polls, you've got well over 70 to 80% of Americans who say they're really not comfortable going to shopping malls and restaurants and sporting events. And so um, they're not gonna spend money. And frankly, given some of the public health restrictions, the, the reasonable ones that have been imposed you know, for restaurants, whether it's 25% occupancy or 50% occupancy, it's not clear that given the slim um, profit margins that most of these companies, most of these small businesses operate under, that you can even really function with those kinds of restrictions. So can I pick up a point that I wanted to follow on to Chris, though, which is that I saw, I think it was in the Financial Times, a figure suggesting that 
50% of U.S. unemployment is from businesses that have actually closed, which I think suggests that the trajectory of recovery is going to be slower because new businesses are going to have to form. They're going to have to hire people. It's not just a function of opening doors back up again. Is that right? Well, I guess it's it's two things. There's a mismatch. If you there was a recent Washington Post, or it was in the Washington Post, they asked workers who had been furloughed, "Do you think this is a temporary furlough or a permanent furlough?" Seventy-seven percent say it's temporary. But then when you ask businesses, um, how many of these uh, layoffs that you've had uh, are going to be permanent? About forty-two percent say it's going to be permanent. So there's a mismatch between what businesses say and what workers say. And frankly, the longer the economy stays closed, the more likely these temporary layoffs become permanent layoffs. That being said, that's not the, that's not a reason for rashly reopening the government, but it's just simply understanding that we're in kind of a, a big unknown at this period of time, and we're really not even, in my estimation, at the point of economic stimulus. We're simply providing economic relief to businesses, whether it's through the PPP program or through unemployment benefits, simply to keep the economy sort of afloat while we try to manage a public health crisis. But one thing I would add, and, and, and again, it's, it's true, David, it's not that your question is boring, it's that this whole topic is so stressful that every time anyone starts talking about it, I immediately zone out because it's it, the thing, numbers like 30 million unemployed people uh, are just so mind-boggling that it's hard to it's hard to even process them. But but I going back to something that, that you and Chris were saying earlier, it, I, I it's absolutely not public health versus the economy. If we can't get the public health stuff right, or at least a little bit better, we're going to cripple the economy. And part of the problem right now is that. For instance, we're seeing these big hot spots in, in meatpacking plants. Um, well, guess what? You know, you have workers who are working in overcrowded, in overcrowded settings with poor ventilation uh, for too many hours at a stretch who don't have paid sick leave, so they come into work even when they clearly are sick, and who don't have adequate PPE. Well, you can, you know, keeping that plant open is going to guarantee infection, high infection rates uh, and an outbreak. Um, if you can get the public health stuff right, if you can get them the PPE, and if you can ensure that America's essential workers are working in conditions with a sort of background level of uh, sick leave, et cetera, et cetera, um, you, you, that, you, you're, you're hitting both birds with one stone. You know, that, that, that the idea that these are separate things is is crazy. And I think the Trump administration is still viewing them as either you get to have the economy restart or you get to have public health. You can't have both. Whereas in fact, we, we, if, if we don't have both, we won't get either. Yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's un unquestionably uh, true. The question also, Ed, though, is if, if we've got to focus on both of those things, are we going to lose focus on everything else? Because nothing else going to get done, you know, between now and 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 when we start coming out of this thing. Um, do you mean on foreign policy, or do you mean on anything? Well, I I meant on foreign policy particularly, but it could be on anything. I mean, it just seems. I mean, like, look, look at your own life. You go out, you talk to people. Does anybody talk about anything other than this? 
Not really. And even when it is about something else, it relates back to it. I mean, I think what the whole world is going through, including the United States or most of the world, um, is what Britain subjected itself to in the last three years with Brexit. Brexit swallowed the entire bandwidth of government. Anybody um, with any ambition left government or asked to be put into the bits of government that weren't related to it. Well, that's what COVID-19 uh, is um, for all, all forms of government, politics, media, and most of our personal lives as well as our professional lives as well. So the idea that there will be bandwidth for other things is um, pretty far-fetched. And I think it, you know, it should be emphasized that when we talk about this really important, very difficult subject of how you ease lockdowns, um, without endangering people, but to encourage, you know, some kind of resumption of eco economic activity, that we look at the best practice countries uh, like Germany and South Korea, and we see that, uh, you know, e even with all the things they have that we lack, which is really, you know, comprehensive contact tracing, uh, much better test availability, um, apps that, um, you know, have some privacy functions um, to alert you to other infected people, etc. Even there, they're getting outbreaks um, uh, and having to return back to more restrictive lockdowns. So in answer to your question, no, until, until, we've, got, until we've got out of this through some medical breakthrough, um, we're not going to be able to think of much else. And uh, it's perfect cover for all kinds of stuff to be smuggled under our noses, under the radar, um, by by autocrats and wannabe autocrats alike. Yeah, so, you know, another dimension of this that strikes me, Chris, is if you have 30 million people unemployed or 40 million people unemployed, or as St. Louis Fed predicted, 47, 50 million people unemployed, our system's not built to handle that. The $1,200 that the Congress was going to send people isn't going to handle people for very long. Many people aren't getting it. Um, th that produces not just economic tensions. That produces social breakdown, doesn't it? I mean, there's, not, there's, not, there's nothing in the history of the U.S. Department of Labor or the United States government that has prepared us for that kind of unemployment crisis, is there? Oh, and I, I think just going back to Rose's point, you know, we don't even have uh, the institutional infrastructure to allow us to safely reopen. We don't have a national paid sick or family leave policy that will protect workers if they get sick again. We don't have access to uh, safe and affordable childcare. I mean, what happens with schools now functionally closed for the rest of the school year? summer camps closed. How do workers go back to work if they have no place to bring their kids? We've seen over the last couple of months what it means when you have a digital divide where uh, large portions of, of, of school kids can't learn because they don't have laptops, they don't have broadband access. What does it mean when you have 23 million kids who get a subsidized breakfast or lunch at school and they can't go there anymore? So it's highlighted all kinds of systemic inequities that now would be, or once we get out of this, would be a moment to sort of address all of these things. Um, I'm, I'm cynical and skeptical that we will actually do that. But I think to your point that you asked Ed, 
Meanwhile, under the radar, lots of other things are happening. I mean, the Trump administration is continuing on their deregulatory agenda. They're continuing to roll back uh, environmental rules. They're continuing to try to restrict immigration. All the things that they've wanted to do, they're now doing uh, under the cover of trying to help the economy recover. They're also painting the wall black. They are painting it black. <laughs> and I would add two other foreign policy um, things to that. One is the too cute by half effort to declare ourselves part of the JCPOA in order to trigger snapback functions, snapback sanctions uh, in it, although we left the agreement some time ago. Um, and second, the real pressure to try and demonize China uh, and to use the opportunity of the crisis to uh, vilify China in ways that take attention off of our own bad choices. I guess I can think of a third as well. Yeah, I bet if you keep going, you could think of more. <laughs> yeah, I imagine, I imagine I could come up with more than two. <laughs> <laughs> keep going, what, give me another one. Uh, so let's see, um, what other one was I starting to think of? Oh, the pressure on South Korea over basing negotiations. On the very same day that the president, very same week that the president wrote his South Korean counterpart asking for medical assistance, uh, we turned 4,000 Korean workers away from their jobs on American military bases in South Korea uh, because we didn't have an, don't have an agreement over cost sharing for the bases. Um, well, there, there, there's another dimension, um, which is per Chris's comment about painting, painting the wall black and so forth. Uh, I, I just read somewhere that the, they're trying to get the money to do that stuff from funds that were earmarked for combating Russian aggression in Europe. Oh, yeah. The Secretary of Defense was required to submit to Congress the list. So, uh, so the administration extra-constitutionally moved money that had been authorized and appropriated for other purposes to funding of the wall. And what happened last week was the Secretary of Defense produced a list of where he was going to take money, uh, of where they were going to backfill it, and funds for the European Reassurance Initiative are one of the many places that the Secretary of Defense has identified um, in order to move money that Congress has not authorized and appropriated a second time. Rosa, that sounds extra constitutional. We must be in a constitutional crisis. Looking like looking better and better every day for the world of constitutional crises. No, I, I mean, all kinds of bad things are happening. I don't know, Ed, I mean, does anybody even care? I mean, we seem to, it seems like, you know, we're, it's just like, do whatever you want. You know, let's, you know, I, as long as I get my toilet paper um, and I don't have a paper towel crisis, uh, you know, governments are, you know, coming up with ridiculous schemes. They're sort of overreaching. And that's certainly, that's certainly happening here. Don't, or am I overstating um, I mean, look, the conventional world that should care about what Bill Barr did with Mike Flynn last week did care. 
you know, um, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of people were deeply outraged. They were worried about the precedent. Um, but but um, how many? You know, like 5,000 well, people, 10,000, the wonks, the listeners to this podcast, 100,000 people. Sure, it didn't seem like it had a lot of national resonance, did it? No, but you know what? It didn't have much before COVID-19 either. Um, you know, it's not as if the things that rightly exercise those who, who full-time um, have been monitoring Trump's abuses and excesses of power and his pushing of constitutional limits, to put it very politely. It's not as if, you know, this is ever something that people are going to be talking about in the diners, or, you know, in the, in the sports stadiums, in the days when we went to diners and sports stadiums. So I think COVID-19 is sort of pushing on an open door there. You know, you, you can get away with an extraordinary amount um, uh, at the moment. Um, and um, Trump, Trump is undoubtedly going to exploit that. I'm sure Bill Barr has a lot more things in his pipeline to sort of stick on that line. I know that Trump has been paying a lot of attention in the last few weeks to initiatives to uh, reduce uh, the voter registration rolls in various states, whether there's a Republican-controlled legislature. I know that, um, you know, mail-in uh, mail balloting is going to become a very, very important piece of this election, and that Trump, you know, is opposed to mail-in balloting for a number of reasons. Of course, he's also opposed to the U.S. Postal Service for 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 um, reasons, uh, well, reasons to do with um, Jeff Bezos, but Bezos, but um, but you know, m maybe if he does succeed in doubling or quadrupling the USPS's rates, you know, mail-in um, mail-in mail elections will become too expensive. None of this is going to be discussed on the streets. Um, um, it's something that a tiny minority of people who are alert are going to have to sort of shout out. And I share the, you know, what you're, what you're asking. I think the spirit behind your question is that it's even easier now to, to get away with blue murder in broad daylight. Um, and um, so those of us paying attention have to, have to scream back with, with, equal, with equal vehemence. Yeah, I mean, Chris, you know, some sometimes it, it's easier to get people worked up about a thing that isn't even real. I mean, Trump seems in the past couple of days to be on about something which he is calling Obamagate, which he says is worse than Watergate. Uh, I assume since you played a central role in the Obama administration, it all comes down to you in the end. Um, but <laughs> Confess! confess. Yeah, conf use this as an opportunity to clear your conscience. But, but, you know, we, it seems to me we're sort of entering disinformation season on top of all of this. Yeah, I, we, we are, and, but, and yet on some other, I mean, this, this kind of crazy uh, rage tweeting Trump did yesterday on, on Sunday where I, I lost count after 107 times he tweeted or retweeted. Uh, you know, it, there, there is, yes, he, he, he's now just amplifying some of the really kind of far out voices on Twitter right now. It's, it's not clear whether any of this is resonating anymore one way or another. I mean, I think people have just sort of uh, made their decisions one way or another about Trump. You see his approval ratings uh, in terms of handling of the pandemic virtually back to where they were before this. His overall approval ratings are virtually the same, notwithstanding the fact that we're uh, basically in a recession, if not a depression at this time. I think one of the really troubling things I think that he's taken advantage of is kind of the absence of Congress at this point. Uh, we can have a whole conversation about whether Nancy Pelosi should bring the House back, but in the absence of the House being there, there functionally is no oversight at this point over anything that's happening. 
uh, and to the extent that there are even hearings that are happening on the pandemic, which there ought to be, they're all really happening on the Senate side at this point. So you're not getting those checks and balances. And obviously this week we're going to get a pretty big oral argument in the Supreme Court on the uh, Trump financial records case as well so that will kind of better delineate or shift the line in terms of where those checks are. Well, I would like to come to that. And I'm, Rosa, I want to I talk to you about that for a second. But let me just sort of wrap up here with a round of sort of independent questions, uh, just things that are on people's minds as we go into this, uh, into into the week ahead. Uh, Corey, is, uh, uh, Secretary Pompeo's going to be in Israel on Mondays. He's, 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 he's setting aside his own travel limitations. And he's going there ostensibly to discuss Iran, something you brought up earlier, uh, settlements, um, and uh, also COVID-19, although that seems like a bit of a, a fake. But one thing that strikes me about it um, is that, you know, w- the, you know, if you're Bibi Netanyahu, the clock is ticking, you know, the Trump train is leaving town in six months. And if you can't get something done now, you know, you, you, you've got to be worried that under a Biden administration, if that happens, you're going to be back in the deep freeze like you were with Obama. I do think that Secretary Pompeo's main purpose in going to Israel is to associate the administration with the expansion of settlements that's coming and the ruination of the possibility of a two-state solution. That's something it seems to me the administration is quite enthusiastic about. And it's another example of them playing politics, not foreign policy, in a way that uh, is going to create a lot more problems for American foreign policy in the region, especially as I think is also likely in the next six months, the president's going to write off both Iraq and Afghanistan and probably even the broader anti-ISIS fight in Africa and in Syria. Um, And so uh, Israel will, to a much greater extent, be on its own in the region than when the United States was anchoring, had anchoring relationships around the region and the potential collapse of Jordan uh, if there's no possibility of a peaceful future for Palestine is a really serious problem that the administration has made no effort to deal with, near as I can tell. I mean, Pompeo is going to be 30 minutes away from Amman and yet isn't going to Jordan when that country has both taken in an enormous number of Syrian refugees and been a stalwart supporter of what the United States and Israel are trying to achieve in the region. Yeah, well, so, there, I, I think there's a longer conversation for all of us to have on this because I can just think of other issues where the, you know, the foreign policy is going to turn into a pumpkin in January one way or another, you know, like, Saudi Arabia policy or Yemen policy or some of these other places where we're going to do a complete 180 if we change the administration. And that's going to provoke perhaps action out of the, the Trump team between now and then. Um, Rosa, we, we talked a little bit about this Supreme Court case tomorrow and, you know, you'll be our designated lawyer in this issue, but it does seem like um, the, 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 the Supreme Court um, 
is finally going to have to make some decisions that reflect on the internal debate of the past year. Do you have any outlook for all that? I'm not, I wouldn't count on some decision coming down in a month or so it, that says, uh, you know, Trump has to release his tax returns, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think this court has found a very wide range of ways to delay and avoid dealing with the substantive issues of executive power and privilege that have been raised by a whole series of cases involving Trump himself and the Trump administration. Uh, my suspicion, I, I hope I'm proved wrong, is that they will find some other way to reflect, uh, you know, by not, I, I don't think, I don't think that, I certainly don't think John Roberts wants anything to do with these cases. I don't think, I, don't, I think that there is very, very likely going to be an effort to not decide on the merits and, and punting one way or another. I don't know exactly what method they will choose for that, but that would be my prediction if I had to guess. That they don't want to say, Trump, you've got to disclose, nor do they say, oh, yeah, fine, go ahead, be a dictator. Uh, so they're going to try to. I think it's going to be anti climactic. Okay. Um, I, I, one question, which I'm going to ask to add and then to Chris, which will be sort of the wrap up question, but I did notice that there was an article in New York Magazine this week that said that whatever Joe Biden may have been planning to do, he's now got to do a kind of FDR-sized administration. In other words, you know, he's got to rebuild the U.S. economy. He's, you know, been made aware of some really serious vulnerabilities that we have in terms of health care policy, unemployment uh, programs, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I'm just wondering, Ed, if you buy that argument and if you really see a sea change like this coming. And, and Chris, I'll ask you the same question. Maybe you can be specific about what is necessary. Certainly by the argument that that should be what Biden's aiming for um, in terms of how he frames his campaign and, and how he should attempt to govern uh, if he becomes president. I'm aware, you know, I've been talking to various people who are informally advising Biden as economists. I'm sure Chris has too. Um, and we all know, you know, some of these characters you can you can guess. And there is this debate going on, which very much sort of tacks on to the pre-COVID debate. Uh, well, the pre-COVID um, uh, messaging of the Biden campaign, which was we want to return to normal um, versus, you know, many other candidates, not just Sanders and Warren, um, who said, no, no, a crisis is an opportunity. Here is a moment where we can. Trump then being the crisis, Trump plus COVID-19 now being the metastasized crisis. Um, we have to use this crisis as an opportunity to fix the system in a far more Rooseveltian way. Um, and that debate is going on um, inside the Biden campaign. Um, I have to say, I find, I find it hard to believe Biden's gonna go too radical, but I do think he's got more radical than he was you know, when uh, when he was competing in South Carolina. I think that COVID, you know, does give him the opportunity to escalate um, the kinds of ambition, economic ambition that, that he can have. Let, let's be frank, he's, um, here's the deal. Sorry, I should use a Bidenism. Um, here's the deal. Biden is old. He's not at the peak of his powers. He's definitely not senile, but, you know, he's not what he was in terms of energy. Um, I think he's going to have to put a lot of time into who his running mate is. I think it really matters much more than normal.
who his running mate is. And I think that person is going to have to be seen uh, almost sort of automatically as a potential president in a way most running mates are not. Um, and I think the economic messaging around that person is going to be going to be very important. I've seen suggestions that Kamala Harris is now on the top of the shortlist to be Veep. I can understand why, but if Biden wants to signal a more radical, more thought through, bold, a persistent experimentation kind of Rooseveltian agenda, Kamala Harris doesn't really fit that bill at all. Um, and that's just one consideration, um, you know, in, in how he weighs and how he weighs who he chooses as his running mate. Uh, Chris, same, same question, although, you know, implicit in what Ed was saying was, you know, and I don't want to put words in Ed's mouth. I would never dream of doing that. But, but part of it is. You're welcome to. Okay. Well, and then what Ed really meant to say was, um, <laughs> You know, uh, if Larry Summers is advising the Joe Biden administration, he's not going to um, oversee uh, or suggest Rooseveltian change. Uh, now, there may be camps that do. Uh, the Democratic Party is divided on this. Do you think it can resolve those divisions and, and will feel compelled to because of this crisis? Or we're just going to sort of hit, you know, go back to square one? You know, look, I, I actually think it's, it's, the, um, it's the dichotomy between vision and implementation. I mean, the vision pre-COVID-19 was return to normalcy, which I think was and is a winning message. I think grafting onto that, we now need to emerge from this crisis in a better way than we were before this and trying to address some of these systemic inequities that we've talked about, whether that means something of New Deal proportions. I think the challenge, the political reality of that is if Democrats take back the Senate, it's going to be by about one or two votes, if at all. We're also now facing a budget deficit that's looking like three to four trillion. Uh, there's the, there will inevitably be the calls for fiscal discipline after we've spent all this money. So the realities may catch up to the ability to do something big, but I think this gives the Biden campaign an opportunity to frame their campaign beyond just normalcy. This is something bigger than that. Uh, and I think that actually gives them, that, that actually adds to what I think was a winning hand, regardless of you know, whether they can implement any of this uh, next January 20th. You know, when I was uh, in the uh, Clinton administration, some of you may remember that, that was a long time ago. Um, but the first thing we did when I, when I went into it was we went and talked to a former cabinet secretary and we asked him, what's your advice? And he said, whatever you think, you can only do three things. Pick the three things you're going to do because you can't get more than that done. Um, and you know, it strikes me just listening to you, they may get one big thing done. They may get two big things done. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to solve problems in the way that Roosevelt did in the first hundred days, I don't think. But we'll see. And we'll be here to talk about it. Um, and hopefully we'll be here to talk about it with all of these fine folks again um, uh, in, the, in the weeks uh, and months to come. I want to thank you for uh, joining me, uh, Rosa and Ed and Corey, and uh, of course, Chris, welcome for the first time. Hope you'll come back. And I want to thank everybody 
uh, for joining us here at the DSR Network. If you want to find out more of what we're doing, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Uh, I think we're almost sold out of the Deep State Radio masks. We're going to have to order more of those. They've been <laughs> extremely, extremely in demand. Can I uh, have one? Oh, yes. No, we'll make sure that each of you, each of you has one um, or more. But, but uh, the demand has been high. So if you want one, now's the time to do it. And it's a good time to sign up to be a member. Um, and um, more good and interesting things coming over the weeks ahead. So please join us, thedsrnetwork.com. Thanks, everybody, and stay safe.